you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Hello one and all, welcome back. I'm feeling particularly positive today because finally there are some signs that summer is looming in Europe. But with inflation stubbornly high, GDP growth rates bearish and warring Ukraine casting a long shadow, are there any bright spring shoots visible for the European economy and for demand across modes? That will be our focus today on this European special when I'm joined by Scan Global Logistics' Mad Strayer. Conor Fian, Secretary General of the European Rail Freight Association and Port of Rotterdam Authority's Container Director, it's Hans Nagtegal. What I see is that there will be more ships capacity, so more vessels will be there. There will be enough containers in the system and probably new inventories have to be stocked up. If that translates into a peak season, I don't know. I hope at least that we get a little bit of an, a normal situation. That would be good. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Hello, one and all. I'm sure you know by now that this podcast is available on all reputable podcast platforms and probably on a few that I've never even heard of, such is the way of the internet these days. And of course, should you prefer, you can also find us on thelodestar.com, along with a daily high tide of the best in shipping and freight journalism. As trailed, Our focus is on Europe, where you might have heard there has been rather a lot of gloom of late. Will we be able to lift it? I'm not 100% sure. The economy itself is currently struggling with low economic and trade growth prospects. High inventories and soaring inflation are dampening freight demand. Strikes by unions are plaguing supply chain planning. And, as we'll hear, ocean and air freight rates have collapsed, at least compared to a year ago. And on top of that, war in Europe continues to take a sickening and damaging economic and human toll on the continent and on the wider world. But we'll also hear today that for those in the business of supply chain, there is hope of a recovery later this year. And things really aren't as bad as they might have been. Rates could have fallen further, for example. The growth outlook could be worse. Recessions could be deeper. A lot of the pandemic era supply chain bottlenecks have now evaporated. And guess what? Demand for intra-Europe rail cargo is holding up rather well. So with that economic landscape at least partially mapped out, coming up, we will be looking at all things container shipping and port logistics with Hans Nagdegal, Director of Containers at the Port of Rotterdam Authority. We will also delve into how war in Ukraine and sanctions have hit the Asia-Europe rail business with Conor Fian, Secretary General of the European Rail Freight Association. But first up, let's look at shipping and air cargo markets and that general economic and freight demand picture. And to do this, I'd like to welcome Mads Dreyer, Global Chief Commercial Officer and Chief Operating Officer at Scan Global Logistics. Hello, Mads. How are you doing today? I'm good. Happy to be here. So uh, look forward to sharing our view on, on the world as it looks. Thanks very much for joining us, Mads. As we just heard there, we've got significant economic challenges facing Europe and the freight industry. I want to come to what you think will happen over the rest of 2023 in a moment. But Fez, can you give me an overview of how this downturn has played out for you guys at Scan Global? Presumably it's varied by sector, by country. Yeah, I think uh, we are also uh, seeing a few days where some of the the global freight forwarders or the last ones are coming out with their annual results. And and I think like anyone else, we're not living on a remote island, but uh, I will also use the word diversification a lot. Uh, We do see, of course, that 23 is uh, slower than 22. But what I think has over the years been an opportunistic approach is maybe playing in our favor right now because we are very widely spread across verticals. And I would even claim we have a a few verticals that are what we call counter-cyclical in the sense that uh, if you take aid and relief as one, then uh, we we do actually see significant growth in some verticals, but we more so call it a consumer spending crisis in the Western world. It's not equal to the fact that we see the entire world being down. So I would say we are better off, relatively speaking, from what I can see, at least. And how positive are you about the rest of 2023 and 2024, particularly in relation to that European economy? What are your customers doing? Are they whittling down those inventory overhangs? Perhaps that gives us a boost later in the year. Yeah. What's your take on this? I echo what I also see other places. 
the sort of a spiraling optimism, uh, absolutely. At some point, the inventory levels will have to go down for the simple reason also that some of the products will actually become obsolete at some point. So even though they will not be sold, maybe they at some point will need to be scrapped. But I think we are seeing it this happening in Q3, Q4 only. I don't expect Q2 in any shape or form to be materially different, maybe a slight uptick. And again, uh, I think there's a lot of focus on the trades from Asia to Europe and Asia to US. But again, I just want to emphasize that, that we see the world a little bit bigger than that. Exports, industrial cargo still looking good, I have to say. But I do see people spending a little bit more money. That said, I think the cocktail that is out there is a little bit dangerous. You have sky high inflation still, at least relatively speaking. I know it's down uh, somewhat compared to when, when it peaked. And then if you look at how the world has been financed over the last year, then... Um, the access to capital is simply more difficult. And the access to cheap debt has been financing a lot of the growth the, the world has seen. And there is no indication that interest rates are just going to plummet uh, because you need relatively high interest rate to manage the inflation. So on the other hand, I do think the countries that are potentially having an issue with managing their debt, they might not just benefit from the uptick in the same way that countries that have a more healthy, uh, you can say, debt and managing so yeah, that's probably the way we viewed. So conservatively optimistic, but yeah, hope is not a strategy. You mentioned there about industrial exports. I was looking at some US government data yeah, and what struck me was the nature of US imports. So we've seen a big decline in things like the retail goods, furniture, that type of stuff, but imports of industrial products. And a lot of this comes from Europe have been rising. Are you seeing those exports into the US or are they also going over to Asia and elsewhere? No, as you rightly say, uh, then if you look at the transatlantic trade, as you just mentioned, we do see a different pattern. And that's also why I think it's important to differentiate between consumer spending of sort of the typical non-food products, so let's call it garden furnitures and bicycles and what have you coming from Asia. Factories and productions are still running at a rather high pace. So we, for example, to your point, see quite a healthy export into U.S., and that's also why a few of the carriers, or most actually, have redirected a lot of capacity into that trade. So yeah, absolutely, I concur on, on that view. Yeah, and those rates have held up better, although they've come off quite significantly since those highs, what, late last year, 10 of the year. Yeah. As we're on shipping, let's look at the Asia-Europe trade. Obviously, this is the big trade in global shipping, well, with intra-Asia and, and the Trans-Pacific, of course. But let's look at Asia-Europe because we're talking about Europe. Now, according to Zenitor, Far East to North Europe spot rates were running around $1,500 per FU in the final week of April. That compares to over $11,000 per FEU a year ago, a huge drop. Now, I would add that that spot market is still higher by around $300 than it was in April 2019. Contract rates have followed a similar sort of downturn. One of the interesting things that we saw in April is that while carriers had some success on the Trans-Pacific implementing general rate increases, there hasn't really been a great deal of movement towards GRIs into Europe. So, Mads, a couple of questions, I guess. Why haven't we seen those GRIs? And how have you been managing this massive lurch in container freight rates at Scan Global? And, and how are your customers coping with it? I mean, the market's been turned on its head, right? Yeah, I think if we just start with the first question, I think one of the reasons there's a difference between the Trans-Pacific and the Far East Westbound is that the contract season is also different in terms of timing. So I think carriers have been trying to uh, to hike up the rates ahead of the contract season or as part of the contract season. And conversely, the contract season on the Far East Westbound has taken place a few months ago, so start of the year. So I, I think for that specific reason, you're probably seeing the GRIs being more prominent and more... Um, more in play on that trade. Uh, so, so I think that's a very specific reason for that. As for the Far East Westbound or Asia to Europe, well, first of all, I, sometimes I think we are quick to forget this has always been a highly, highly volatile industry. I, I know that the rates we saw the last years, and especially last year, they were sky high and they were also uh, historic, but, but it's nothing new. I do recall from my younger days, the rates of zero or even negative. It has always been a, you can say, volatile market environment. And I, I just think the, it came faster than we expected, but that it landed at this level is actually not surprising. So I think if, if you're a freight forwarder and you've been around for some uh, 15, 20 years, you're used to managing this. I actually more so think it's because it's gone mainstream to a certain extent. So many have an interest in, in these sky-high rates, but 
it is what it is and uh, rates will continue to go up and down and that's never going to go away in my view in this industry and so actually i think it's important to take a little bit of the panic out of it to be honest so i, I think customers are receiving it well obviously i think as consumers we all want you can say rates that are market relevant but i think they also still remember that the cost of not having cargo on the shelves still exceeds the consequence of whatever freight rate you have to pay. That's my clear impression. So yeah, overall. Back to inventory levels then. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, yeah, I, I think company, of course, uh, due to cost inflation on many areas, also with the energy and so on, of course, they're looking at logistics and transportation as an area where they can potentially, you can say, save some money compared to what they potentially perceived and expected six, nine, 12 months ago. But overall, I see customers behaving uh, quite fair and you mentioned Seneta, it's a very transparent world we live in. Uh, so actually, I think these dialogues are fairly constructive. Uh, we all know where the market is, and then it becomes a matter of service and the value we, we add to the process. And I'll just clarify there for anyone who's new to the ocean freight market, as a rule of thumb, that long-term contract market, now it's very complex, but a lot of the Asia-Europe long-term contracts are negotiated December, January, the Trans-Pacific, May, June. So the reason why carriers might be keen to put those GRIs into Trans-Pacific is the level of the spot sets a bar for those contract discussions which are ongoing at the moment. So have I explained that okay? I know I've simplified massively. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, my comment was directly aimed at that. So uh, so yeah, all good. Okay, so where would you uh, put you on the spot slightly? Where where the spot rates go the rest of the year? You said they always go up and down, but where do you think they're going? I think they're going to go slightly up. We do see so that modest uptick in activity should, in theory, reflect that spot rates will go also up as well. But again, we are not foreseeing a massive increase in rates, at least not on this time of the summer. Q2 on Asia to Europe is a relatively slack season period. So slight uptick, but not much, to be honest. So stability would be the word, I would say. And would you be telling your customers that maybe to expect a lot of blank sailing and a little bit of disruption depending on carrier strategy? I think uh, we've been looking at all-time reliability being down in recent years. It's improving as we speak. So I think it's a relative thing. It's still going to be better than what it's been for the last years. I think uh, blank sailings are here to stay, but, but I don't foresee a completely different approach in terms of blank sailings. If that would have been the case, it would already have been done a month ago to control the, the rate development. So. Uh, I think carriers now understand the importance of, of reliability and actually also that customers are willing to pay for reliability as opposed to low, low rates and then constant unreliability. Let's have a look at Air Cargo Mads. We've, I would say the picture's relatively similar. We've got a sustained period of downward trend in rates from record highs. The year-on-year -year figures look awful, but they're still higher than pre-COVID in most markets. I had a chat with TAC Index's Peyton Burnett last week, late April, and he said rates have continued to trend down in April um, and there probably would be a more severe decline if e-commerce demand wasn't holding up so well. Yeah, We've got the inv invasion of Ukraine. It's causing all sorts of airspace and fuel operational issues. How are you seeing air markets right now? Presumably, your customers are now a bit happier with shipping availability and reliability, so air really is back to being the mode of last resort in and out of Europe, I suppose. Yeah, I think there are a few things that are potentially playing against each other. I think uh, rightly so, as you say, then uh, ocean freight rates are down and that I think, of course, makes ocean freight more attractive relative to air freight. On the other hand, reliability is up for air freight and that actually means that customers can actually plan again on the basis of air freight. And because for the last couple of years, or at least until a little, little while ago, it was hard to plan with air freight similar to ocean freight. And if you couldn't plan on air freight, then why spend so much money on it? We do see customers now taking it in as part of their setup in their supply chain because there is a demand for air freight. There's a reason it exists. Some commodities simply just need to go to market at a different pace than others. So actually, I would expect volumes to pick up also on the air freight side. That's also what we see in recent weeks. So yeah, we are actually fairly optimistic on the air freight side, I have to say. Yeah, slight uptick to, to sum it up. I mentioned war in Ukraine, Mads. I mean, there are other things going on in, in terms of European logistics markets. We've got labor shortages. We talked about inflation earlier. Where are you seeing issues pop up within your network? I think the airlines have by now sort of gotten accustomed to, uh, you can say, some of the impacts from the war in Ukraine. So that, I would say, is, is a lesser issue. We still actually do see uh, 
I have been reading articles about uh, air traffic controllers, lack of workforce in, in some airports, et cetera. So I actually more think is on the infrastructural side still, rather than it's the more geopolitical uh, impact that we're seeing. But overall, as you also said, volumes are also down compared to what they were. So right now, I have to say, we don't see major operational issues when it comes to air freight. And that's, again, also why we see customers now starting to plan with this in a more structured manner compared to what they have done. It still remains a very flexible product. There are many options out there. And yeah, consumers, they have high expectations these days in terms of pace and when they want their cargo. So from that perspective, we do see a continued demand for air freight also in 23. We've had strikes. You mentioned air traffic controllers. They've been on strikes yeah. in France and various other places. We've had strikes at ports over the last year. There's been strikes right across Europe. I mean, is this something you can plan for at all? Or you just have to warn customers that they're happening all over the place all the time. And this is the economic environment that we're in. And there's no doubt we are spending more time on topics like these in our dialogues with customers today than we were before. I think before you always were talking about rates and supply and demand, but I think the whole infrastructural part is one that we do spend more time on when we issue our customer advisories. This is taking up more space in the advisory than it did just some two, three years ago. And actually our view is also that people seem to think that all the infrastructural challenges have just been resolved overnight. We actually don't share that opinion. We just see that due to volume being down, there's simply less pressure on those pay points, but some of the pay points are still there. So when and if volume will return to the extent that we saw pre-COVID or in the early days of COVID, we actually fear and expect that some of these challenges could come back. The workforce in terms of truckers, they are getting older and older and it's hard to get the truckers uh, both in the US, but also in Europe, as mentioned, the air traffic controllers. So I, I think it's a little bit early to celebrate that the whole infrastructural challenge is just fixed. We actually don't see that. And also where the port can consistently handle large vessels with high demand when they're all full. Absolutely. Right now, I think they're getting a little bit of relief due to the activity level having been down, but we all know at some point it's going to come back. And then uh, I think we're a little bit anxious on how that will then unfold. Thanks, Mads. Um, finally, what's next for Scan Global? Do you guys have any more investment or expansion plans? I mean, just share all the exclusive news is most welcome on this podcast. Yeah, but how uh, to make it as exclusive as it can be with these things. No, but I, overall, we are doing good. As I said, we know we are not living on a remote island. So, of course, we take part in the world and uh, also see activity levels being a little bit less than they were last year. But as you may have seen, we, we continue to open up new offices. We have expansion plans. We will be doing M&A also in 23 and potentially also in Q2. I can't be specific on where, but M&A is part of our growth plan. And that for sure is a, the concentration that exists and is taking place is something we want to actively participate in. And then, yeah, we do see uh, quite a lot of competitors going to bottom line optimization mode and all due respect to all strategies out there. But I, I think the nature of Scan Global is to be aggressive in times where, where we're going through now. I think the last years we were spending time on securing capacity. And I think now we are spending our time on commercial efforts to a degree that I have not seen before. So we call that extreme growth. And that also means we, we will continue to hire, especially on the commercial side, eh, no doubt. Yeah, I think we have a few geographies where we still need to plant a few flags, but plans are going as intended. And yeah, so I think we're just cautious in general not to go into panic mode. I don't see any reason why we should be in panic mode. The world has always been cyclical, as mentioned. And we think a, a firm hand on the wheel is actually the most healthy approach to this. And then, Mads, are you sure you don't want to share how big this budget is, this war chest for your M&A activity? And, and maybe you could share a little bit about your air or ocean. Where are you leaning? Where's the footprint weakest? Yeah, well, what I can say is we have an ambition by 27 to double our business. We are today a $3.5 billion business, and we have a plan by 27 to double that. And what I can say is we would expect half of that to come from organic growth and half of that to come from M&A. So that could give you some indication on the figure in terms of what, what we need to achieve. We wholeheartedly believe in a more or less equal balance between air freight and ocean freight. There is more ocean freight in this world, no doubt. Air freight and actually Scan Global is historically some 45 years ago born out of an air freight company. It sits very close to our hearts and is something we will focus a lot on in the years to come, no doubt, and continue to do that. 
So we more or less today have an equal balance between the two, and we want to actually maintain that equal balance between ocean and air freight. That's actually one of the crucial pillars in our strategy. Thank you very much. Mads Dreyer, Global Chief Commercial Officer and Chief Operating Officer at Scan Global Logistics. It's been a pleasure. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the talks. Now, of course, at the coal face of this about turn in the economic shipping and freight outlook in Europe over this last year has been the continent's ports. And of course, the biggest of those is the port of Rotterdam, located in the Netherlands. I'm delighted to now welcome back to the Lodestar podcast, Hans Nagtegal, who's Director of Containers at the Port of Rotterdam. Hello, Hans, how are you? I'm fine, uh, Mike, thanks, and good to uh, see you again. Welcome back. We last spoke at the very end of 2021, so just over a year ago, I will call it. That was really the height of all of that supply chain disruption that so stymied European supply chains back then. Yeah. Uh, you guys at Rotterdam, when we spoke, were struggling with vessel and hinterland congestion. You had an excess of empty boxes. Uh, there was a lot of juggling going on, should we say, from everyone at the port. How does that situation compare to now? Are those bottlenecks gone? Well, it's interesting when you mentioned the dates that we, you know, it's a little bit over a year that's since we last spoke and a lot of things has happened. And I think going back to that situation, but I think a lot of the European ports or basically the world ports had some issues with logistics. And I think that we all know the direct effects. We saw that indeed uh, delays of vessels, containers staying longer in the port. But what we also saw is that we saw that the challenges were basically also transferred into the hinterland. So where you first saw a challenge on the deep sea terminal, later on, we saw that the same sort of challenges of congestion related issues were transferred to hinterland depots or hinterland locations. So we saw that through the whole situation. And I think what we've learned during that period is that we are in a big system. It's not one tiny terminal or tiny port or one vessel which causes a problem because that's something, and I think I said that also a year ago to you, if it is one particular issue within logistics, we are able to, to handle that. You know, there are delays in logistics and we are able to handle it. You see that it's because of all these different elements, disruptions, like COVID, like ever given, like demand and supply imbalances, which causes everything to interconnect. And there you see that we had the challenges there. And then coming to the situation now, Mike, there's a lot of things which have changed to the better. There is a better schedule reliability. And you see that the, the situation at the different terminals are improving so that the turn time on the terminals are improving. And you, so you also see that the whole system is developing to a better extent. And that's what we obviously also, due to less demands, so less containers through the system, that's, uh, I think that's also a reason for it. But given that the COVID situation is more under control, so the predictability is getting better on that one. And that's what we've seen in general. In Rotterdam, what we have done, we have been very close to the community. We see that it is not such a thing which can be solved by one party alone. So we need the whole, all the parties within the sector needs to work together. So we have had regular meetings on say, okay, where do we see disruption? What can we do? And we also looked at different implementation of various systems, digital systems, which we have done, which is also assisting us in coping better with the situation on that so it was systemic issues. Carrier schedule reliability has now improved because demand's down, which I'm going to come back to demand any second. But can I just clarify one point there? How much has a carrier schedule reliability improved? And have you got rid of all those empties off the ports that were clogging up that system? Yeah. The first part of your question is the, the, the reliability. We definitely see better reliability. It's not there yet, but... Uh, what I can see, let me talk to what I can see, is that we had at the peak of the congestion, we had an average delay 
in the North European ports of vessels arriving of over a week. So vessels were more than a week delayed. And that is now basically, that's now reduced to almost zero. So between one and zero days. So the schedule is there much better. What the exact percentage is, I don't know on that one. And the, the second part of your question is getting rid of the containers. First, we should know that due to the congestion, more empty containers were put into the system. Carriers bought more empties because of the delays. You need more containers to keep the system going. And we see that the empties are being moved out and moved back to Asia, for instance. So there's a lot of containers there, but I still think that there is still plenty of boxes in, in Europe. So it sounds like a lot of these improvements have come about just from lower demand. Can you explain maybe first, what's your take on the European economic slowdown? We've got high inflation. How is that affecting your planning and outlook? And what's that looking already this year in terms of volumes or your projections for 2023? Well, first, let me tell you what we see. Yeah, we see quite a drop of volumes in Rotterdam. Unfortunately, we see about minus 11% in both in tons as in TU, uh, which is quite big. Obviously, there is the Ukraine uh, effect because in the first quarter of last year, we did not have the Ukraine situation yet. So there is an effect, a big effect on the numbers uh, on the Ukraine, but also we see a drop and a slowdown of the Asia boxes. There's two explanations. First, what you just hinted to, indeed, lower demand. Uh, the inflation is going up, although you have to say, well, you know, during the peak of the congestion, due to the high container prices, prices were rising a lot and we did not see a drop in, in demand at that point. So I also see that there is quite a slowdown because of uh, stock. So there was, because of the unpredictability of the logistic chain, there was a lot of stocking up of things. The inventories were going up. And these inventories indeed were something which were, especially in, in the second half of last year, were high. We saw that all the warehouses were getting full and it was also part of our problem uh, with the congestion. Now with the predictability improving, people go back to the normal, if I can say it normal of, or the new normal, just in time again. Huh? Because if it is predictable that you know that a container from Shanghai will arrive in Europe within 32 days, you don't have to stock up so much. And I see that that's on the one hand going, and on the other hand, the inventories are being sold. They sell it out, so they still have enough stock in place. So I think that is a big part of the explanation. We see a bit of a reshuffling of carriers' trades. So you see that people make use of where capacity of the terminals are there. But still, inflation, we see that the boxes from Asia are reduced. At the end, when I talk carriers, a lot of people say that they expect things to normalize and still be okay. I hope that we end up with, in a normal situation by the end of the year, whether that normal will be enough to make up for the minus 11%, which we did in our first quarter. I don't think so, but it will be, uh, hopefully be more normal. Now, Hans, uh, far be it from me to try and draw you on an optimistic forecast for the rest of the year. But looking at the confluence of trends that you just picked out there, yes, we still have high inflation. We've heard elsewhere on this podcast that the economic situation is not quite as bad as many had feared. Like These massive, big, deep recessions that we were talking about across Europe haven't really materialized. Depends who you ask and how you judge it, of course, and which country we're talking about. As your report for Europe, you're affected by all of these things. But if those inventories are drawing down and things are normalizing and people are going back to just in time logistics planning, this sounds like we might be talking about a more positive Q3. Are you thinking about peak season? Can I push you that far? Well, I, 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 I don't know. I think what I see is that there will be more ships capacity. So more vessels will be there. There will be enough containers in the system and probably new inventories have to be stocked up. And how that translates, uh, if that translates into a peak season, I don't know. I hope at least that we get a little bit of an, a normal situation. That would be good. I think if we've got any Oasis fans out there, I think it's their 30th anniversary of something. I think what we heard there from Hans was a definitely maybe 
on definitely <laughs> on the peak season. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm maybe I can go into politics uh, one day, Mike. You know. <laughs> um, okay, let's stick with politics. You you did mention Ukraine events there are very sad, and we've heard a bit more about that elsewhere and how it affected other modes and the demand situation. Can you explain any practical implications of that war and how it affected operations and demand? And if you look at the carriers, how are they playing around? You know, everyone's trying to avoid sanctions. How has that affected you on an operational level, I guess, is my question. I'm sorry to say that I have a very boring answer for you. Well, the effect is a drop in volume. And the effect is that certain specialised carriers or terminals in our ports obviously have a very big effect because they handle the feeders who go to uh, Istanbul's area. Other than that, a lot of the carriers basically have stopped operating and working via Rotterdam to go to Russia. So it, it basically stopped. It stopped the, the activities. So that's the boring answer. So the effect in our port, you know, in the beginning, we had some challenges on what to do with the containers, which were already booked, but uh, now because of the sanction had to be stopped and things like that. And we, we struggled or we handled that for a few months, but now these boxes are gone and there's no influx or outflux anymore. So that's basically it. So the boring part is that it's not affecting uh, apart from the particular companies who had dealings with Ukraine or Russia. Okay. So you've a, a drop in Baltic traffic, a drop in Russian traffic. I, I get you. Yeah, it's not existing, uh, basically, yeah. One of the challenges I, I keep hearing, hands from port managers around Europe is that companies within the port are struggling to find enough labour. I know that the Netherlands is finding this an issue across a number of sectors. I mean, I've seen restaurants in Rotterdam only opening up half their space because of a lack of waiters, even when they've got queues at the door. How does this situation affect the wider port environment, your 3PLs, your forwarders, the shippers at the, the terminals? What, what's the overall impact of labor shortages on the port of Rotterdam? Well, I, th I think we're all fishing in the same pool. And I don't think that, that in Holland it's worse. I don't think it's that much better. But I think what we do see is that it is a challenge to find people. It's a challenge to find good people. Therefore, I'm always hiding when I'm coming to the office. But Yes, it has an effect and it has more an effect on trying to do things differently. And let me give you an example on that one. I think one of the opportunities we see is that we make better use of the weekends or night time distribution so that we pick up boxes during night or during the weekends. The challenge is that, for instance, in the, the, the warehouses, they have already a challenge to find people who want to work during normal working hours. So how do they find people who want to work during the evening shifts and find additional labor? But it would be very good if these warehouses were open to cater for handling these boxes uh, when they come in the, in, the, in the weekend or in the evening. So I think that has an effect. I feel it is more stopping us exploring new and better opportunities. But normal business, so to speak, is doing all right. It's, it's working. So it's limiting your possibilities of growth. Is it hindering expansion? Yeah, I think that's, yeah. On the one hand, uh, you said, well, it's stopping uh, some developments. But I do also see that it is pushing innovation. We have to think about how can we grow without the labor component in it. So it will be, on the other hand, a push for innovation. Talking about growth hands, you have had some quite interesting, maybe exciting news, I would say. APM Terminals, part of AP Moller Maersk Group, has announced the expansion of its Masflak 2 terminal in Rotterdam. The project covers 47.5 hectares with 1,000 metres of deep sea key, and it will add another 2 million TU of capacity by 2026. What's the thinking behind this investment by you guys and APM? And what other investments in container operations do you have in the pipeline? Well, yeah, yeah. We, we indeed are very excited about the choice of APM and MERS line to uh, build their strategic hub into Rotterdam. 
And the numbers are correct, as you described. And we feel that by having such a good hub for both transshipment as Hintle and Cargo, we see that Maersk is committing themselves into Rotterdam and making use of the facilities of, of Rotterdam. So the natural deep water and the connection with the hinterland. So that's the great development also with the de development of their cold store and cross dock facility, which will have an, a direct uh, link to the terminal. What we see is that in future, we think up till 2033, 2034, if we take the growth numbers, which we are expecting, we expect that in the Hamburg-La Havre range, about 15 million extra containers will come our way in this range. And with the developments of APM terminals, but also with the extension of Rotterdam World Gateway, which we hope we can announce in this, still this year, but also with the cooperation MSC and Hutchinson have announced on the Delta terminal, we expect that about eight to nine million of these 15 million boxes will be heading Rotterdam's way. So what we are investing in is making sure that we have the infrastructure to cater for the additional containers which will come to Europe, obviously depending on the, on the growth scenarios, but we think that it will be the 15 million. We will cater for the infrastructure and make sure that the main carriers are able to find a home in Rotterdam. So that's our uh, philosophy on that one. Hans, you mentioned Maersk is going to use Rotterdam as a big hub. All of the different individual carriers, obviously, they've made quite a lot of money over the course of the COVID era. Now, they're investing that in different ways and they have different strategies, whether that's investing in terminals, whether some are going to maybe become a, a standalone carrier, others are investing in the end-to-end -end supply chain, they want to be integrators. There's all these different carrier strategies. Do those divergent strategies affect the nature of the port's relationship with those carriers in the sense, do they ask you for different things or is it still just about matching terminal capacity with what you have available? And is it a very basic sort of relationship like that? Or is it stretching down the hinterlands? Yes, there is a change in relationship, but it has nothing to do with the fact that there is more money available. I think what we do see is that sustainability is becoming far bigger issue and discussion topic, which we are discussing with our carriers. So I think the money earned over the last years, but probably more the license to operate for the years to come has to do not by traditionally having infrastructure and having vessels and terminals, but also how do we do our logistic part sustainable? Uh, how do we ensure that in a few years time, container shipping is still an acceptable way of moving goods around the world. And I think that is what worries us, but also worries the carriers. And that's an, a whole different topic. I, I realize that maybe a, a nice one for next podcast for you. But I think we are all within shipping, but also the consumers, you know, how much do we want to pay for boxes moving from uh, around the world? And how do we ensure that it's being done in a sustainable way? So that's the discussions which we are having with our carriers. So, so if all of the carriers, if their divergent strategies are massively affecting your relationship with them, may I then add, are they all equally as concerned about being sustainable in the future? Oh, that's, I think in, in everything, you have people who lead a pack and there are others who follow. And that's also in this one. You definitely see parties who will take a more active role in this part. Hans Nagtegal, Director of Containers at the Port of Rotterdam. Thanks very much for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks, Mike. Hope to see you soon. Now, let's get some perspective from the rail side of this analysis, in particular, the impact of war in Ukraine on Asia-Europe volumes, but also how this drop in freight demand is hitting Europe's increasingly competitive rail freight sector. To explore this, I'm delighted to welcome back to the Lodestar podcast, Connor Fian, Secretary General of the European Rail Freight Association. Hey, Connor, how are you keeping? Good, Mike. Thanks for having me. 
Connor, we spoke just after Russia invaded Ukraine last year, and we discussed then the collapse of trade on that northern rail freight route from Asia to Europe via Russia, where most goods had stopped moving, apart from some non-sanctioned products and humanitarian products. How did that play out over the rest of 2022, and what's the outlook for this year? Yeah, so to give some context, the volumes 2020, so before the onset of the war, was slightly above 1 million TEU. And the expectation was that this would continue to increase. It was seen as a very strong growth market. That growth market is no longer feasible. If anything, the actual volumes are in decline now. So volumes 2022, that was 720,000. So it was around a 30% drop. And realistically, we don't see it going back to a million anytime soon. A lot of what we hear coming out from European institutions is that we need to find alternative routes. There's real political decision being taken that the Northern Corridor is no longer being seen as priority. But you still have 700,000 TU moving. I mean, where's that going? How does that move exactly? Can you fill us in a bit more on that? Yeah, so I think it's important to state that not all goods are sanctioned. It's only sanctioned goods that are not being moved. There's some goods, for instance, humanitarian goods that can still be moved. And also, it's not just goods into Russia. There's goods into uh, Belarus as well, of course, and then goods into other Central Asian countries. So traffic along this corridor isn't just connecting uh, Russia. It's also other countries. But there's a need to now move away from that corridor. And I think you will continue to see a decline in that corridor because of that. And presumably some Western countries, Western European countries at least, have pulled out as, as operators then. Yeah, well, it's not just Western European countries. There's also some very prominent companies that are no longer operating along this corridor. Uh, for instance, you might have seen Maersk last year suspended all new bookings along the corridor. This is very much because... You don't want to end up stuck with goods that were on the sanction list and they were not declared to you in advance. Or also the collapse of the rule of law in Russia at the current moment in time. It's very difficult to guarantee that goods would not be confiscated or your assets would not be confiscated. So a number of situations like this. So we do see a trajectory that this will continue and continue to decline most likely. But the, it usually takes time for this to happen. And I, also, of course, as the sanctions list grows, more and more goods will not be allowed to be transported. As you mentioned, there are other routes that people have been exploring. One of them is often referred to as the middle route, which roughly it links Asia and, and Central Asia to Europe via Azerbaijan, Georgia, the Caspian Sea, and normally Turkey. There's a lot less capacity on that route. Have governments and, and operators, they've been trying to increase the capacity available on that route or have more volumes been getting shipped? Yeah, there's a major political drive now to look at how we can increase capacity here. Uh, I know there were some discussions recently between the Chinese and Kazakh governments and they were looking at developing up to 760,000 TU capacity. The issue here is though that this would just be able to absorb what already exists on the northern route. So there is potential on the middle corridor, but will all the cargo from the northern corridor be able to move to the middle corridor and to allow for further growth? That is questionable. I think we also need to take into consideration it really take time to establish what is possible here as well. I think if we went back to 2020, no one was really given the middle corridor much priority at all. So it's still very much in a planning stage. I know the European Commission is also carrying out an assessment of the middle corridor, and that's expected this year as well. So uh, we are seeing some figures being thrown around in the middle corridor, but um, I think the main thing to say now is that there is not the capacity that we see in the northern corridor. So overall, this two-way trade between Asia and Europe and linking so many different countries, you don't see too many signs for optimism. Even though there's some long-term aims and ambitions, you don't see too much optimism unless we have peace in Ukraine and an end of war. I think as a means of transportation to China, it will not have the same viability. But I think we also, on that Chinese point, we also need to take into consideration the drop in deep sea uh, rates. So that would have played a role anyway, most likely. 
Where the middle corridor will increasingly become important, though, is geopolitically. We see with countries in Central Asia now who want to modernize their infrastructure to have more direct connections to the European market. Uh, this is where the middle corridor can play a role. Because at the time, they're reliant on transportation through Russia, through China, big geopolitical actors. So I think um, in terms of building better connections with these Central Asian countries, the middle corridor will have an important role to play. No doubt everything between uh, Eastern Europe and Asia covering Central Asia and everything, everything is, has changed geopolitically over the last year and a half. Okay, can we turn to the European economy, if that's okay? Lodestar readers have been reading a lot about the downturn in demand across the continent, which of course has been overladen by these events in Ukraine. And we've heard previously on this podcast how this has been affecting air cargo, how it's been affecting ports and shipping. How is this playing out for Europe's rail freight industry? Yeah, so... We haven't seen a big hit to the rail freight industry. We're seeing a slight increase in volumes. There's still a lot more potential to further grow the sector. Interestingly, during the summer, what we've seen for many rail freight operators was that they had more demand than they had capacity that could offer a solution to shippers. So um, we actually had a situation where many rail freight companies had to turn away customers because they just could not take on the capacity needs. So this, again, it shows that we probably need to be looking at how we can improve that capacity a bit further. But I think, yeah, I think also what we're seeing in rail freight is strong growth in the intermodal market. So there's a huge demand for, let's say, um, transportation of semi-trailers via rail. So I think we haven't really seen the drop we have seen in other parts of the logistics chain. So there's this sort of latent demand that's there, and it's more about getting enough capacity to meet that demand rather than really worrying about where the economy is going. Correct. I think part of the reason could be that why we haven't seen a drop is because rail freight couldn't offer a service to all the demand in the first place. So there's already strong demand for the service. So all we've been able to do is to offer what we can. This is largely also due to the last two years, especially in the German network, we've had a lot of works. So this has really restricted the capacity that's possible there as well. So there is some optimism that the you know demand is still at a good level. The shippers we talk to, they actively say they would like to use rail more. But it's just actually how do we create that supply to meet the demand? And I, I think this probably will tie in with my final question, which links to a report from the European Rail Freight Association that noted that challenges to national rail freight incumbent operators, these challenges are now transporting the majority of freight with about 51% of the market versus just a quarter of the market back in, in 2010. I guess my questions are, why is this important, the growth of the private sector? And on a more general level, and I know this is a, a big pan-European question, but what needs to happen to make rail freight more competitive across Europe? Yeah, so important question. Like obviously, as uh, representing the private independent rail freight companies, we'll say it's good because it's our membership, but it's important to also look at it from a broader scale. What we've seen in rail freight is a diversification and offer entering into the market with new services. For instance, a lot of traditional cargoes have been in decline, let's say transportation of fossil fuels, these type of cargoes. And the, the losses we've seen here have been replaced by what new markets have been created by challengers. So this is like the intermodal market, the block train traffic market. So this has very much offset the losses we've seen in traditional movements. So basically what we've seen in the past was a, we had different countries in Europe that had their own incumbent operators and they very much worked at a national level. Now we have a lot of different challengers that work on an international level. Usually the priority is moving across borders. And to be honest, it's more reflective of how freight works. What we have started to see as well, which is promising, is that even national incumbents now, they often do reflect this as well, and there is a change. So we really believe that this opening of markets has forced 
all actors in the rail freight sector to actually become more operationally focused and to reflect how freight moves, namely that it travels internationally, doesn't just stay within one country's jurisdictions. This can also be reflected in the fact now that over 50% of the freight trains cross at least one national border on a trip. So even the operational reality of rail freight today is international. On second question on what has to be done, the major issue we still have in growing rail freight is capacity constraints. We still operate an international business, namely rail freight in national systems. So capacity is managed nationally. It is allocated nationally. So it often means that a rail freight company has to book capacity in different countries bilaterally with each infrastructure manager. And then you need to hope that there's no problems with your capacity in each member state, which potentially creates complications for your train run. So this is one of the main things we also need to be looking at how we can ensure drivers can operate internationally as well. So if they're removing barriers at the borders, or at least uh, allowing for a more streamlined approach to changes at borders. Uh, right now, for instance, we, there's language requirements. So you need to have a, a driver that's up to a certain level in the language of each member state. So we need to see how that isn't creating too much of a barrier to movements. And there's a possibility to allow for a regime that focuses on how we keep trains moving. And then uh, we also need to look at competition with road and how that can be further improved. And a, a lot of the issues we look at here are also infrastructure charging. For instance, a rail pays for 100% of the infrastructure that it uses through track access charges. The same is not always the case for road haulage. So how can we bring rail to a more similar level where it can compete equally? And Connor, presumably you'll be having a boost in terms of pushing those aims and that agenda as the whole European economy moves to decarbonize. Yeah, there's a huge political initiative now to deliver on modal shift. I think it's widely accepted that enough has not been done until now. So I must say at the political level now, there's a lot of goodwill there for rail freight. But really entering a key year now. So um, for your listeners, the European Commission will present a legislative package on the 21st of June. And uh, this will include a lot of key legislative proposals. So this will deal with capacity management, train driver directive, weights and dimensions of semi-trailers. So these packages will all have a key role in determining and what position rail freight will be, let's say, the next five, 10 years in order to meet model shift objectives. Best of luck with that, Connor. It sounds like a, an uphill battle, but keep trying. Connor Fian, Secretary General of the European Rail Freight Association. Thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. No problem. Thanks, Mike. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenitor, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.